Well, we finished chapter 6 last week, and that brings us to the beginning of chapter 7 in the Gospel according to Luke. And so I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 10. This is the story of Jesus healing a centurion's servant. And it begins like this. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he highly valued and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed them, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Well, I've noticed that there are some people who get very uncomfortable when you use words like doctrine, or creed, or dogma, anything that refers to a fixed belief. And I don't know why necessarily, but if I was to guess, I would say it's because people understand that fixed beliefs are like a sword, that they are divisive, and there's no getting around it. If I, as a Christian, say that I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and my Muslim friend, who hopefully I love, tells me that Jesus is not the Son of God, there is certainly a divide there. It can't be denied or just brushed under the rug. And unfortunately, the reality is, because of our fallen nature and our will to dominate and control, oftentimes doctrines have been used to commit atrocities in God's name. That also needs to be recognized. If there's one thing I'm certain of, it's that Jesus and the apostles that we read about in the New Testament would have never burned a heretic at the stake. And that isn't to say that God's judgment isn't revealed in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, for example, we have Ananias and Sapphira that are struck down dead in judgment. But it wasn't for being heretics. It's because they lied to the church. But 
it's just silly to think that you can be a part of a community of faith and not adhere to doctrines. And I'll give you one example of what I'm talking about that comes to us in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Beginning with verse 16, he writes, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying very plainly that if we don't believe in this doctrine that God raised Jesus from the dead, we'd be better off finding a new religion because Christianity has nothing for us. There's nothing left to give if we dispense with this belief. And there's another ancient creedal statement known as the Apostles' Creed, which is supposed to characterize the teaching that the Apostles gave to the early church. And I want to read it to you this morning because I think it is helpful, especially if you're not familiar with it, to have a basic understanding of what we are supposed to believe as members of the body of Christ. This is what it reads. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. And one of the names that sticks out in my mind like a sore thumb in the Apostles' Creed is Pontius Pilate. What is he doing there, and how did he get into this statement of Christian faith? And I think the main purpose of it is to drive home the reality that this is not mythology that we're talking about here. When we talk about our faith as Christians, we believe that God has acted in human history and that God did raise Jesus from the dead and that this is a historical fact that has serious theological implications. But it's not just an abstract theology. And there's a couple other I want to mention in passing. I'm not going to go through the whole gamut this morning, and you're welcome. But there's a couple I want to mention, too, that I think are important, theologically speaking. One is the creed that was established in Nicaea in 325 A.D. That is a Trinitarian creed that deals with Jesus' divine Nature, where he was declared to be of one substance with God the Father. God is one being in three persons. Jesus is one of those persons. And by the way, this is one of those creeds that's often mocked 
and ridiculed by skeptics. This was the day which Christians decided that Jesus was God and we voted him in to the throne room, which, of course, is ridiculous. The doctrine of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity, true, is not mentioned in the New Testament, the doctrine is directly derived from the revelation that we have in the New Testament. It's been there all along. It took us a little while to figure it out. It is kind of complicated. And the other one I want to mention that was sanctioned 125 years later was the Chalcedon Creed in which we declared that not only is Jesus one substance with the Father, but he is also completely human. So he's one person with two natures, fully divine, fully man in every way except without sin. And sometimes when we use the word faith, what we're doing is we're referring to the fact that we believe in these fundamental doctrines of the church. And along those lines, I think it's important for us to remember that this doesn't mean that we've got God completely figured out. It's the best that we can do given the limitations of our human understanding. But that's one of the senses in which we use the word faith because even though, and this is also important that there are evidences that we can point to, say, to bolster the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig is one Christian apologist who I think has done a very good job of making the historical case that Jesus did rise from the dead. But it's something that you can't prove like you can prove a proposition in geometry. I teach geometry at ICS, and proofs are almost universally despised and hated by math students. And the good news is you're not going to be given one this morning. These are things that we have to accept to a certain extent by faith, things that have been revealed to us in a special way by God. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the story of Jesus healing the slave of a centurion? Well, this story is also about faith, but it's about faith in a different sense of the word than what I've been referring to so far. And one of the key elements of this story that we need to apprehend if we want to understand it aright is that this centurion is a Gentile. He is a Gentile and not a Jew. And he was probably a middle-ranking officer in the Roman army who's been sent to Capernaum to keep the peace. So in our modern vernacular, he is what we would call a police officer. And he's serving there in Capernaum. And oftentimes, Roman soldiers who were given these duties despised the local inhabitants. Oftentimes, the Romans disliked the Jews just as much as the Jews disliked the Romans. But this is an exceptional case because the scripture tells us that he loved the Jewish people and that he respected them. And not only that, but he paid 
to have their synagogue built. So he is a unique character, but the fact remains that he is a Gentile. And for that reason, he probably only had a very limited understanding of Jewish beliefs. So that when Jesus is praising his faith, it's obvious that that's not what he's talking about. And it's also helpful to remember that the book of James points out that even the demons in hell, when it comes right down to it, can be pretty orthodox at times in their theology. He, like other Jews, recognized that there was a divine power at work in Jesus. He recognized that Jesus had authority. And other Jews recognized this too. They knew that Jesus had the power to heal. They knew that Jesus had the authority to cast out demons. But knowing this, this Roman Gentile put more confidence and more trust and more faith in Jesus himself than any one Jesus had encountered in Israel. And he praises the faith of what was probably a rather unorthodox Gentile. And the question for us is, do we have that kind of faith in Jesus Christ? Because it's very easy for us to get distracted along these lines. One of the things that Protestant teachers talk about all the time is the merit of Christ's finished work on the cross, for example. Now, I don't doubt the merit of any work Jesus has done or will do. But that's not what we're supposed to put our faith in. We're supposed to put our faith in Jesus himself. The focus is Jesus himself, not the merits of his finished work. How easily we make idols even out of something like that. Now, this centurion had faith that Jesus could heal his slave who was at the point of death. He trusted in him. Do we believe that Jesus can save us from our sins? Do we really have that confidence in him? One of the main figureheads, perhaps the main figurehead of the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, before he was a reformer, was an Augustinian monk. And if what I read about him is correct, he was one of the most monkish monks that ever walked God's green earth. He was the type of person that whenever he did something, he did it 110%. He just threw himself into it completely. And he not only disciplined himself as a monk, I mean, he flat out abused himself as a monk for the sake of God's glory. And he was absolutely miserable. And at one point, he's talking to a priest. And the priest looks at him and says, you're making this way too hard. All you have to do is just love God. And Luther's legendary response was, love God. 
I hate him. And the reason he hated God is because in his mind, God was like a bad father who is never pleased with his children, no matter what they do. And then he began to read some of Paul's epistles in the Greek translation. And he stumbled across verses like this in Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ revealed God's love for us, not in that he died for the godly, but that he died for the ungodly. That was the revelation that was given to us in Jesus Christ. God's love for the ungodly. And that's when a window opened up for him. And he realized the necessity to discover this for ourselves and believe it. To believe that it's true. You know what? When we're raised in church, we're taught to say things like this. We're taught to say that we're great sinners. We're taught to say that God loves sinners. We're taught to say Jesus died for the ungodly. But do we actually believe it? Have we discovered it for ourselves? Do we have faith that Jesus Christ loves us in this way? It's not easy. It is not easy. Now, I want to make it clear that, of course... This reality has been abused by unrepentant people who say, well, God loves the ungodly, then let the good times roll. Let the ungodliness begin and we will praise his abundant grace. And the New Testament writers, if you're talking about Paul, you're talking about John, you're talking about Jude, all of them tell us that those who adopt this mindset will not enter the kingdom of God, that they will regret it, that the grace of God is not a license to sin. And sometimes Christians become very defensive when they hear something like this. I caused an explosion at a Bible study one time just by pointing this fact out. And what we hear is, but we sin every single day, every single day we sin. Yes, but there's an important distinction we need to make here. Coming back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was not an ungodly man who wanted to live an ungodly life. He was an ungodly man who wanted to live a godly life and found that he didn't have the ability to do it. And there's all the difference in the world between these two mindsets. All the difference in the world. You know, repentance does not primarily refer to a change in action. That's normally how we think of that word, repentance. I was doing something and then I stopped doing and that's repentance. But even though actions are connected to repentance... What repentance primarily means is a change in the mind, a change in heart. I must leave my sins behind me. I must come out of the darkness into the light. God's will must be done in every area of my life without exception. That is repentance. But the problem is... That once we make this determination, 
we are confronted with the fact that we are unable to carry it out. That our sins are still there, that we still fail, that we still fall short. And that's where faith becomes so important. When the shadow of our incompleteness towers over us, overshadows our lives, threatens us, tempts us to despair. That's when we say, you know what? My life is hidden in Jesus Christ. And I have faith that he will bring me home to God, my father. And I trust in him and I have absolute confidence in him. That is a great faith. That is the kind of faith we're called to have. The kind of faith that justifies us. When we put our hands in the father to be sanctified and trust that he will complete his good work. That's greater than believing that God is the creator of heaven and earth. You know what? That's not that hard to believe. There are deists that believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But do you believe that God is at work in your life every second of every day to make you his glad and joyful and thankful child? That is. Is a great faith, especially when we are confronted with suffering and sorrow. There's a pastor of a church down in Santa Barbara. Some of you may have heard of him. His name's Britt Merrick. He's the pastor of Reality Church in Santa Barbara, and he's got a 12-year-old girl who's dying of cancer. And, wow, that's, that's tough. I mean, I'm tearing up thinking about it because, you know, I have a little girl. And it was, it was so powerful, this, this sermon that he, that he preached. He looked at a, a text in Matthew uh, chapter 10 about the sparrow that falls. Uh... Jesus didn't say that the sparrow wouldn't fall. He said it wouldn't fall apart from our Father in heaven. And, and he, he believes that. It was amazing. Just, just this incredible sermon that this man preached in terms of what he had been through. And, and that's the kind of faith that we're called to, the higher faith goes beyond just beliefs and doctrines and dogmas. And, and I don't like the anti-intellectualism that's made inroads, in, inroads into the church, people that just want to reject anything that has to do with doctrine. But I, I agree that God is greater than all that. He's greater than all that. And there's two things, I think, primarily that destroy our faith in God. One of them I've hammered on so frequently that I'm not going to spend much time on it this morning. But it's just the fact that we are so seemingly unwilling to do the things that he asks us to do. Uh, and the man is preaching to you, I'm a sinner, and I am perfectly aware of how fragmentary my obedience to God is. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said, you know what, I'll know 
that you love me, not when you preach sermons about faith or sing worship songs, but when you do the things that I tell you to do. That, you know, faith comes through hearing, but faith is watered and nurtured by obedience. And even though our life is hidden in Christ, when the Holy Spirit is stirring in us to do God's will, we need to say along with the prophet Isaiah, here I am, send me, whatever that might be. But there's another thing that destroys our faith, and I want to address it by looking at a verse in John's Gospel, the fifth chapter, going down to verse 44. This is John chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he's saying, How can you believe when you accept glory from one another... And do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying, how can you believe in me? How can you trust in God when you spend your lives trying to get recognition from other people? And for a lot of us, that's how we spend our lives. We want to matter. We want to feel like we matter. We want to do something that makes us special. We want to be creative or be good at sports or be pious or be nice or kind or something that people will recognize. And we don't realize our essential poverty. We refuse to take it into account. Now, I'm not just talking about our depravity anymore. When I say our essential poverty, what I'm talking about is, again, the recognition that even if we never sinned and spent every second of every day serving God tirelessly, we would only be giving back to God what is already His. We have no ground for boasting. That's why the prophet Jeremiah tells us, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, nor the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And our faith will grow when we let go of ourselves, when we realize our complete dependence upon God. And some people don't think about the goodness of God because, again, they're just living lives in which they're not interested in God at all. But some Christians who in ways are very devout don't think about the goodness of God because they're so anxious about their own lack of goodness. And it's a distraction. It's a real distraction, and it's real hard for us to say along with Jesus that no one is good but God. And so, again, I'm going to put my faith and trust in him in the same way that the centurion trusted in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to believe what Matthew told us in his gospel, that he has come to deliver us from our sins. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we 
pray that you would give us hearts that are full of thanksgiving, that are eager to rejoice in all the good things that you do for us and that you have given us. And I pray that you would teach us to let go of ourselves and to let you reign in our minds, to be wholly devoted to you, to give us that trust that you can transform lives and make them renewed in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.